Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the other half. Chat, Elodie Harper on The Wolf Den. As you may have noticed, we're coming to the end of this season of The Other Half, and so it's time to decide on the topic for the next one. Eagle-eyed patrons and social media followers would have seen that the three potential topics have just gone up on the Patreon page. They are three exciting options from the modern period, one from the Renaissance, the next from the 18th century, and the other from the 20th. If you want to find out what they are and have your say, then you will have to sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. It's quick, cheap, and easy, and it really helps me out. Okay, on to today's episode. Like I'm sure many of you, I am a real fan of quality historical fiction. A few months ago, I had Ellen Alpston talking about her book, Tsarina, and today I have British TV journalist and author Elodie Harper on to talk about her latest novel, The Wolfden. Elodie Harper is a reporter and presenter at ITV News Anglia. She's worked as a journalist for the past decade, including for Channel 4 News, ITN and BBC Radio. Her job has seen her join one of the most secretive wings of the Church of Scientology, and cover the far-right hip-hop scene in Berlin, as well as crime reporting in Norfolk, where her first two novels are set. This book takes her in a new direction, and to a new time period, in the Lupinar of ancient Pompeii, and I had the pleasure of talking to her a few weeks ago. Now, to give you a bit of a content warning, this is a book set in a brothel, so there is a description of sex and sexual violence. It is not a pornographic book at all, and it is far from titillating. It is a story of survival and redemption, and actually has some very humorous moments. That said, it will not be suitable for younger readers, nor for anyone who may be sensitive to those kinds of topics. Alright, that warning done, let's get to the interview. Hi Elodie, welcome to the podcast. Hello, lovely to be here. 
Yeah, and it's always great to have authors on, uh, particularly uh, in the times of COVID. You know, it must be difficult, you know, sort of writing your books squirreled away and, and not being able to get out and about, um, particularly a book that I imagine required a lot of research. Yes, I'm very lucky that I could do that before the pandemic hit. So for the benefit of the listeners, um, so what is your book about? So my book, The Wolf Den, is a reimagining of the lives of a group of women in Pompeii. Pompeii is obviously a site we can visit. So much of it survives. And I chose to focus in particular on the group of five women who lived and worked in the town brothel or Lupana. Um, So it's about their adventures. And in particular, it's about the story of one woman there, Amara, who wants to get out of the brothel. And it's her journey through Pompeian society, her adventures really in her quest for freedom. That's a great and very succinct uh, start to the episode. So you've obviously written books before. Uh, You've previously written mostly sort of crime thrillers and obviously your background um, is a journalist. What made you switch to historical fiction and and sort of Roman history in particular? Well, I've always loved Roman history. I studied uh, Latin up to A-level and also as part of my university degree, I did a paper of Latin literature in my first year of Catullus and Horace um, in in the original. And then for much of the degree, um, I focused on sort of the reception of the classics in English literature. So it's it's been a long, long time uh, love of mine. In terms of the move from crime, the first book that I wrote really, I hadn't necessarily seen it as a crime book when I wrote it. Um, I saw it more as a kind of supernatural horror, to be honest. And then it kind of developed into a crime book. And it was just too close to my regular life. So the things that had made it an attractive thing to write about in the first place, you know, obviously, I cover a lot of crime as a journalist working for ITV Anglia News, meant that it just didn't feel like an escape for me. It felt too dark. It wasn't something I'm really happy that I wrote those two books and I enjoyed writing it but it it was just too close to my daily life really I wanted to do something else and and reimagine something else. I mean I think they always say write what you know I mean I I did a degree in in medieval history and then doing a history podcast I I definitely understand the notion of sort of writing as an escapism or creating stuff as an escapism Particularly with historical fiction, I think that's a great way of sort of inhabiting a different time, a different world. Yes, exactly. So, so you sort of uh, talked about what attracted you to Roman history. Why, uh, why Pompeii? So, Pompeii is really the closest to time travel that we can get in so many ways. It's not just the site, which is extraordinary. You know, you can walk down streets. There are wheel ruts in the road where carts went past. You go into sort of old shops, you can see the counters, the marble counters, um, where the sliding doors went across. You can wander into entire houses, you know, most extraordinary paintings and frescoes and mosaics. It's an exceptional place and it's not that difficult to imagine yourself in the past when you're there. Um, And, you know, there's all the artefacts as well. Um, In the museum in Naples, you know, a lot of the frescoes have been moved there and they're perfectly preserved. And they tell us a lot about daily lives, what the Romans ate, um, how they decorated their houses, what they wore. The graffiti tells us a lot about how they thought about life, how they interacted. So it's an incredibly rich resource as a site. And the brothel itself, the Lupana, um, is a really evocative, quite haunting 
place. It's not the happiest place to visit. Um, you know, it's it's quite dark, it's quite cramped. But I felt quite a strong sense of injustice visiting it, that it's still kind of somewhere that's seen as a bit titillating, a bit of a laugh. Um, you know, the women are not really seen as people. It's kind of all oh, look at the sexy pictures on the wall. Um, and I feel very strongly, you know, these were real people. They had real lives, um, which were quite hard, you know, in, in lots of ways. But as well as the harshness, there would have been other sides to life as well, because there always is. So I was really interested in thinking about how they survived in Roman society, how they thought of themselves, how they might have had their own dreams and ambitions, really. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been to Pompeii as well. Uh, lucky enough to have been there to to Herculaneum and, and to the museum in Naples, and it is amazing just to see how well preserved exactly. everything is. I mean, there's the I don't I have to admit I don't recall going to the brothel, but I remember there's a particularly horrifying bit. I think it's around the corner from the amphitheater where there's a person. Who you can that you can still see part of their bone that was preserved. Yeah, that um, too. And it's sort of, you know, when you think about um, the volcanic eruption, the destruction of the city, it's, it's sort of difficult when it happened two thousand years ago to really imagine these people as people. They're just almost like characters in a story. Um, and what's really good, I think, about historical fiction is you can find out from the histories from. Virgil, from Cassius Dio, from from all the great historians about the emperors and about the great people. Um, But you never, almost never hear anything about the ordinary people. And for that, really, you need to go to historical fiction where you can use your imagination, you can collate little bits of information. Absolutely. And also to Pompeii, where, you know, we have the graffiti of ordinary people. We have more information about ordinary people's lives from there. You know, just sort of seeing the mundane things that they remarked, you know, the, how much they pawned a cloak for or whatever, or, uh, you know, their lists of shopping. Um, it, it tells us about that other part of life. And as you say, you know, there is a lot of focus on the emperors or Cicero and senators, um, but not so much on regular people, which, 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 which did attract me. And it's also interesting what you were saying about the bodies. That is obviously a huge part of, of the site, uh, the horror of that. And the intrigue as well, being frank, you know, it is it, it is also fascinating. But for me, I almost had to pretend that the eruption was not going to happen. I genuinely, hand on heart, wrote that book without thinking of Vesuvius at all, because they wouldn't have known it was coming. And, you know, it wasn't a doomed world for them at all. They were just getting on with their lives. So... You know, I, I tried to not focus on that that aspect, both in a way in my research and in the writing. Yeah, because I kept sort of waiting through the book. I was like, is she going to bring up Vesuvius? Is that going to appear? I, 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 unless I missed it, I don't think you mentioned the, the mountain at all. I mentioned it a couple of times. So but, but they're, so, they're such mundane references as they would have been for the people. So Pliny talks about the wine. You know, he wants to travel closer to Vesuvius to see some of the vineyards. Um, and a couple of times, um, you know, Amara refers to the mountain that she, you know, that's in the background. But it's so peripheral as, as it would have been for people living there because they didn't know it was a volcano. So it would just have been a mountain in the background. Um, so speaking sort of of you mentioned Pliny, I mean, he's uh, Pliny the Elder is, is a real life historical character that was in there. 
um, and I really enjoyed um, his little um, his little cameo. Um, are there any other real people in the book? So the names of the women are actually so Victoria Cressa and Berenice, the the brothel um, workers, those three women, and in fact also Paris and Felix are names that are found in the brothel in the graffiti. Um, and Victoria in particular, um, her character is partly based on how that woman expresses herself in the graffiti. She calls herself Victoria the Conqueress. She's quite a forthright um, person. Um, Paris and Felix, there's a lot of ambiguity about were they customers, were they um, sex workers? Well, I should, probably shouldn't call them sex workers because it implies a level of choice that people didn't have, uh, enslaved prostitutes, really. That that was taken from it. Sitius. The landlord opposite, he was a real person as well. We know that the Elephant Inn existed. It was directly opposite the brothel um, and was run by a man called um, Sitius. So mainly the other characters are kind of fragments from graffiti. Pliny the Elder is the only one who is a real historical figure. And we sort of, you've talked a couple of times about the graffiti. So I think every single chapter of the book starts with a graffiti yeah. quote or, or something like that. And again, from Pompeii, but also going to um, the Roman baths in Bath uh, in the UK, you see these little bits, and and they're always they're, they're magnificently petty, yes. as well as like, and, and they're usually like some. Because I think often the in, in, in Bath in particular, you throw you almost it's almost like a wishing well, but it was more a kind of a cursing well. They throw it in because they wanted to, like something bad to happen to someone who slighted them. And they're always like incredibly petty. They're not like, oh, they stole lots of money from them. There's always like, oh, he, I don't know, he covets my cloak or something weird like that. It's absolutely, I love that about the graffiti in Pompeii as well. I think there's one that's like restitutus is, has been rubbish to loads of women is, is something and so-and-so got me pregnant. You know, it, there's a, which is actually, you could take as comic or I would say pretty heartbreaking given the consequences that that could have. But they are about kind of everyday woes and joys, really. And I love that too. Um, I agree with you. There's one in Pompeii where somebody's wishing their rival to have really bad piles. <laughs> so it, it is pretty petty. So obviously you've been to Pompeii and been to the museums. How else did you go about doing the research for the book? There are, I'm lucky, you know, there are a lot of really fabulous books that have been written about Pompeii. So Mary Beard's very obvious example. Um, there was also Robert Knapp wrote a wonderful book called Invisible Romans, which looks at people who, who we often ignore, particularly enslaved people, um, you know, trying to get into the mindset of what it would have felt like from the inside. Daisy Dunn uh, wrote a wonderful biography of the two Plinies called In the Shadow of Vesuvius, which was very helpful with that character. And then, you know, lots of picture books as well that you go around the site and then you come home and you might not remember everything. So I did find quite a few illustrated books that were very useful. There's also a book specifically on the, the brothel by Sarah Levin Richardson. I didn't find that until I'd written quite a lot of the book and sort of plotted out the plot. So it didn't impact in that way, but it was you know amazing for having you know some insights into how she felt it was run and also a complete appendix of the graffiti but I have to say the main 
source after you know Mary Beard's Pompeii which is such a great overview of the place was Roman authors honestly I tried to stick to ones that were contemporary to the time so Marshall or, or previous you know who would have been familiar um, to the writers Petronius's the Satyricon is actually set in if not Pompeii another town from that region and that was a big influence on the book. You know, I sort of riffed off events that happen in there and ideas from there. So, and, and Ovid's Art of Love, which is a sort of deeply cynical book about sexual relationships, that I drew on very heavily as well. So, I mean, you could have set, uh, I mean, if you were obviously wanted to set a book in Pompeii, you could have set it in a lot of places. Um, you could have set it uh, maybe in the uh, amphitheatre, for example, or, or any other building. Um, why a brothel? Well, there's, there's the reason I already mentioned, which was the feeling of wanting to address the injustice, honestly, of how the women were viewed at the time and how they continue to be viewed. And that is a really big motivating factor for me in writing that book, to write an unexpected book about the brothel, one that's not titillating, one that's not kind of uh, an up Pompeii, carry on type atmosphere. I mean, you know, I hope there's humour in it, but not at the women's expense. So I think that was really key for me. Also, the brothel is kind of like an extreme version of what so many women's and enslaved men's lives were like at that time, as in they had zero sexual autonomy. And that's a really key aspect of women's history, really, until very recently. I mean, it was only marital rape was only outlawed in the UK in the 1990s. Um, And also, you know, a book that I really admire, The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargraves. She looks at sort of sexual lack of consent within a marriage in that book. Because that, yes, they were in a brothel. So, of course, you know, the lack of sexual consent is very obvious. But really, whether you were a brothel worker or a wife, you you didn't have any say in who your relationships were with that way, unless you were very lucky. So I think that aspect was something that I wanted to think about as well. Just these Romans who aren't really in the foreground very often to sort of think very to reflect a lot on what it might have been like to have been enslaved in that period, and in particular to have been a woman who is enslaved, and not to do it all from a kind of bleak, woe is me perspective, but really, you know, how would you survive an environment like that? How would you get something good out of it? Because that's what we all want to do, ultimately, isn't it? You know, people don't want to be miserable. They want to try and get, make the best out of things. Yeah, I think something that's, I mean, social class and and sort of... Um stratification and, and the responsibilities and roles implied by that are sort of come through a lot in the book. I mean, obviously the main characters are slaves and not just the women in the brothel, but other other characters like uh, Menander as well. I found it interesting as the book went on, you start going beyond the brothel to other places as, without wanting to give too much away, um, Amara starts to better herself, for want of a better word, uh, and sort of work as a concubine, as a dancer, as a singer in sort of noble person's houses and you start seeing different kinds of enslavements, former slaves, but still vaguely tied women who have no choice, even men who are sort of bound by their own class, even if they're wealthy against sort of being with the people they really want to be. 
Yes, that, I'm glad that came across because, yeah, and you're right. I mean, I, I should say for the benefit of anyone reading this book, it is not all set in the brothel. It starts there and then it, it is very much about her adventures and her journey to get out of the Lupana. Um, that, was, that was really key to think about social class because a lot of the literature that we have from the Romans is pretty mocking of slaves and freedmen um, and freedwomen. I just wanted to switch the perspective and look at social class from from the other way around. Um, and as you say, to think about the ways in which it, it, it affected everyone. A lot of the people further up would just have been completely oblivious to what other people's lives would have been like. Maybe we're not so different, frankly, today. Certainly. I mean, there's there's almost this constant gaslighting going on because the slaves have this sort of dangle above them. It's like, oh, maybe one day you could buy your freedom or maybe one day your master will die and free you. And it's something that occasionally happens and is held as this distant carrot uh, and happens to almost no one. It's like winning the lottery. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, that was the the kind of way that that enslaved people were treated. You know, sometimes it was just absolute brutality, which I, you know, I didn't particularly want to spend my time dwelling on that aspect. But yes, I think, you know, again, people need something to hope for, don't they, to, to get through life. And unlike the transatlantic slave trade, you know, there was not a kind of racist basis to who was enslaved. So you couldn't distinguish who was free or who was slave in the street, for instance, necessarily. I mean, you might be able to tell from people's clothes whether they were wealthy or not. The Romans had this unique category of citizen freedmen and freed women who who don't really exist at any other point in history to that same extent who were neither enslaved nor were they citizens they kind of had this liminal place that's certainly something i'm exploring more in the second book as well um what, what it might mean to inhabit that space yeah actually i was gonna come come on to this a bit later but yeah one another thing i really enjoyed is all the these women in the wolf den this are the main main characters all come from different places pretty much so you have one lady from carthage uh amara's from greece um uh, you got um, shockingly one of my favourite characters, Britannica, who's from Britain, and I think it's interesting. You think of the ancient world, you think of people. You know, you forget how cosmo- cosmopolitan it was. You know, this was a a multinational empire, and the whole world, sort of a whole Mediterranean world, at that time, sort of converges on Rome. And I'm really, I was really enjoyed how that came across, and those sort of cultural differences, and how those were exploited how they were fetishized how they were understood or not so this assumption that everyone speaks latin that you have to become accustomed to the roman way i found that really really interesting something maybe we should have gotten to the beginning which is the actual title of the book uh, the wolf den which i from my brief study of latin i know comes from lupana why is a brothel sort of associated with wolves you know, you've actually got me there. Um, I don't know for absolute certain why, just that, you know, the word lupana means both brothel and wolf den, just as lupa could mean um, she-wolf or prostitute, which actually does cast a really interesting light on Rome's foundational myth that uh, Romulus and Remus were brought up by a lupa, by a she-wolf. They've chosen to see it as rather than a prostitute in their myths and legends. Yeah, I don't know what the origin of that was. I assume, you know, it, it's it's to 
a slangy way of showing how kind of edgy and almost animal the, the women were considered to be, although really they were far more prey than predator, frankly, in how they were treated. Of course, I mean, it's, I think there's always this weird way that society read men treat or sex workers or, or women in general sort of they're sort of criticized for being uh, being whores for being loose for being bad people when certainly i mean in roman times and a lot of the times in in the modern world it's not their choice and yet they're all demonized for something they were forced into by slavery by economic circumstance by all sorts of things um one of my favourite aspects of the book was the is the camaraderie between the women. Um, a lot you have a lot of scenes where they're together, where they're working together. Relationships develop; they fall apart. What influenced the development of these sort of well, the main sort of female characters, the prostitutes, but also I guess some of the other people that worked there, people like Paris, for example. So with the women, I just didn't want to have a stereotype of the women or being rivals and bitching. And, you know, it would just have also been too dark a book. They were contending with enough. And I think it's more real, realistic and I more hopeful, certainly, the idea that they would have found some solace and connection with each other, that they would have laughed. I mean, every crappy job since the beginning of time you know how you get through it is having a laugh with your colleagues really isn't it you know just you've got to get some fun out of it somewhere even if what's going on is is quite grim so I did want to have a real sense of fun and humor and that they are kind of looking back at the men and I I feel I should also just as a little aside say there's absolutely nothing graphic in in the book as well in case anyone's listening and thinks there's loads of graphic sex there's not uh it was much more interesting to me to think about how they sort of coped with it rather than focus on that aspect of, of the work all the time paris i'm really glad you mentioned him so i was quite surprised because we think about um the ancient roman world being fairly liberated in their attitudes about sexual orientation you know there wasn't an issue with people well with men anyway being gay I was quite surprised to see the extent of the homophobia against men who were considered to play the female role in a sexual encounter that they sort of suffered a lot the same stigma that women suffered from um, which I hadn't expected to come across so Paris is for me quite a tragic character in that he doesn't feel able to have a bond with the women because he doesn't want to be like them but equally he's not really accepted by the men so I thought his position was 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 quite tragic really um and I also you know in a character who's who's minor in this book Philos the enslaved person of one of Amara's wealthy clients you know he sort of refers uh briefly to his exploitation and his past, because this was a time when men actually were really vulnerable to sexual abuse and sexual exploitation. It was it was a very common part of life. And in fact, one of the theories behind why there are no gay love scenes in the sexual frescoes in the brothel is the idea that this is because many of the clients would have been slaves, and they would have experienced non-consensual sex, and this would have been traumatizing for them. So they are kind of only shown in the inverted commas male role in the brothel. Again, so it's sort of come up already, but I think this book is also 
well, I don't think it is clearly, uh, about empowerment, about seeing women trying to make the best of life and also trying to rise up the ladder to create a better lives for themselves. And they do it in, what I find interesting, they do it in different ways. So particularly um, Victoria, Berenice, Amara all have sort of different routes that they think they're going to take out. Obviously, this is, we like to think of this as something that happens in the past, but obviously we still live in a very unequal society in many ways, um, but still between uh, men and women. Is there anything that you think we can learn from ancient Rome? There's a big question. I did warn you about this one. Uh, anything that we can learn from ancient Rome that can make maybe that we have lessons we haven't learned and can maybe make things better today? I do think the kind of structural sexism, inequality, classism is, is something that we're still obviously very much uh, grappling with, honestly. You know, I was very, very mindful in the book that I didn't want to make any of the characters um, feminists because that wasn't a worldview that was available to women at that time. However, you know, there were powerful women, there were wealthy women, there were women who involved themselves in politics. So, you know, and women who married up, to use an old fashioned phrase. So they did have roots to empowerment that they, you know, would have pursued, I think, quite aggressively, as much in the Roman times as in ours, um, just to touch on your previous point. In terms of what we can learn from it, I think, you know, the fact that we consider ourselves to have made a lot of progress, and in so many ways, obviously, we have, I would much rather be a woman in um, 21st century Britain than, than Pompeii in the first century. But you know, a lot of it's very similar. Just the, the sexual attitudes, really, I mean, just all the stuff that's come out recently, with women talking about their experiences of rape culture um, in school. Ancient Rome was certainly a rape culture. Well, maybe we haven't learned as much as we'd like to think. Uh, so I guess in many ways, that's how I would say we can learn from ancient Rome by looking at things in their society that are similar to ours. And sometimes that's quite comforting, you know, like f- familial love, you know, more hopeful things that you think, oh, wow, you know, people loved each other. They were just as capable of having great relationships back then too. But also just this sort of structural sexism and inequality, although it looks different in the Roman era, it still exists. And I think we still need to keep challenging ourselves on that. Yeah, I would also add to the examples you gave. Uh, there's an example, there's a story going in the United States about uh, a congressman, Matthew Gates, uh, and mm. sort of hit sort of the, I hate using the word laddish because laddish makes it sound a bit fun. But this really sort of horrific culture that seems to appear his office around the people he used to work with and currently works with sort of assigning points to how many people you can sleep with different kinds of people. And these include interns um, or, you know, women who are working in the office who are so who they have some sort of position of authority over. It is striking how little we've learned. Uh, And even with slavery, I mean, this sort of, you know, sexual slavery is still very much a thing today. And, Probably, I'm not an expert, I would imagine the tactics used by criminals um, are not all that different from the tactics used by Felix and the people like them, you know, in the Roman world, you know. I, I think that's, that's true. It is, that that's definitely true. I think the thing that was just so profoundly different is that there would be no legal recourse, you know, that you were legally owned. Um, and that's 
you know, one sort of mark of hopefulness, I'd say, for our own time that, you know, sex trafficking is obviously massively illegal. It does it does happen and people turn a blind eye and you could say isn't, isn't a top priority a lot of the time. But it is still ultimately not something that is that is outwardly condoned. So I guess in that sense, we, we have come a long way from from a society where, you know, this 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 was just considered absolutely fine and normal. I am at pains also to mention that we've been on a, a series of very deep and, and sort of dark topics. And it is in many ways quite a dark book. You know, it, uh, you don't shy away from, from the horror. It's not titillating at all. I mean, there is plenty of, of sex in the book, but none of it is described in any way uh, a sexy way. But it's, it is a book that also contains an awful lot of light and shade. Um, the banter between the women, sort of observations they have of life, just things going on. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, it's certainly not a comedy, um, but it's also not a sort of an unrelenting sort of heart wrench. No, I'm, I'm glad you say that. And I wanted it to be mainly an adventure story, honestly. So although, you know, obviously there are these sort of darker elements that we've discussed at length, it's, it's also a kind of oldest time adventure story of somebody, you know, Amara's Greek. She's come to Pompeii. It's an unfamiliar place. It's her adventure through Pompeian society, her quest for freedom. I wanted there to be a lot of humour in the book so that it would be enjoyable to read, which I hope it is. But also, I think there's a truthfulness to that. You look at the graffiti and it's just really funny a lot of the time, even when people are writing about quite dark things. You know, there is a real lightness of touch. You know, to be alive is to be hopeful a lot of the time. Um, and we're talking about young people who, yes, they're not starting from the best place, but they're hopeful for something better um, in whatever way they can get it. So, yeah, I, I'm glad if that came across because I certainly wanted people to to take that from the book. And also just the escapism of writing in such a different time, the kind of wonder of the surroundings, the street life, the grand houses, the whole sort of long extended episode that deals with Pliny the Elder which is you know several chapters is is quite a sort of holiday from some of the darker aspects of the book so you know I did want to have a lot of light to the shade in there and so the book ends on something of a I wouldn't say a cliffhanger but it certainly suggests more so what is next for Amara and the women of the Wolfden? Well I can't tell you too much without sort of major spoilers as to what happens in the book but you know that journey continues. It, it, it's it is a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. Although, having said that, a lot of people thought it was a standalone. There, you could just read that book and have things resolved. Yeah. So that you know, it's it's in a trilogy, and we're in seventy four AD, and the eruption was in seventy nine AD. So I kind of leave to people's imagination where the trilogy might be going. So, well, do you have a date for when the next book is coming out? Yes. So um, the paperback for The Wolf Den's out in October and then the hardback for the second book is out in May and I'm actually midway through it at the moment. <laughs> well, I very much look forward to reading it. So The Wolf Den by Elodie Harper, published by Head of Zeus uh, in the UK, is out on the 13th of May. Uh, unfortunately, for those of you who I've managed to excite in the in the United States, uh, the book does not yet have an American release date, but I am certain it will do one day and I will share it with you once it does. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, James. It's been a real pleasure. I actually misspoke a little at the end there. While the book does not as yet have a US publication date, 
that does not mean you won't be able to buy it. Sadly, it won't be in US bookstores, but you can get it online through Amazon. However, I would personally recommend getting it through Blackwell's, as I believe you can get it with free shipping, even internationally. For those of you in the English-speaking world outside of North America, you can get it from your local bookstores or online as well. I've put some purchasing links in the show notes, which, in the interests of transparency, are affiliate links that will send some commission my way. I was also sent a review copy by the publisher in preparation for the interview, but all opinions are my own, and if I hadn't liked the book, I wouldn't have done the episode. The Wolf Den is published by Head of Zeus, and is released on Thursday the 13th of May. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll see you all next time. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.